Well, it's so good to see each one of you this morning. Um, last Sunday, following uh, our last Sunday afternoon, Danny and I were talking, and she said, "So, what is next Sunday's message over?" And I told her that we were going to be looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and taxes. And she goes, "The two givens in life: death and taxes." You know, and that is so true. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ returns. There are two guarantees in life. Number one, we're all going to die. And number two, we're all going to pay taxes. It was Benjamin Franklin who said in 1789, but in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Luckily, we serve a Savior who conquered death and has made provisions for our eternity as well as provisions for our financial needs as well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 27 together. I love to hear the pages of Bibles. Let's read together. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Notice our message point this morning. It's this. There are unpleasant realities in life. And as indicated, death and taxes are two of those unpleasant realities. But we serve a Savior who has made provisions for our eternity as well as provisions for us to be able to pay our taxes and mortgages and and such. Notice our first point this morning. It is this. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. Once again, in verses 22 and 23 are our focal verses we read. And they were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. For the second time, in a matter of days, Jesus predicts his impending death. He predicted it one chapter before Matthew 17 and Matthew 16, and then obviously in our focal passage this morning, that he's going to predict his death one more time in Matthew chapter 20 in the coming days. With each of those predictions, the description becomes more and more detailed and more and more vivid. And we see here in our focal passage this morning that the disciples had become greatly distressed. Man, they were upset any time they heard Jesus speak of his impending death. They were uneasy. Why? Because they did not fully grasp everything that Jesus was speaking about. Notice the gospel is the foundation for saving faith. 
The gospel is the foundation for saving faith. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, there would be no gospel. And without the gospel, there would be no good news. The late Reverend Billy Graham preached a very simple message, didn't he? I've, over the past couple of weeks on Sirius FM radio, they have been um, dedicating a station to just Billy Graham and his messages and sermons that he's preached over the past 50 or so years. And I've been listening to those periodically, and I listened to his funeral service on Friday. And Billy Graham was a man that, that preached a simple message, but it was a powerful message. And we know that when the gospel is preached, lives are transformed several years ago there was a movie that came out by the name of unbroken it was the cinematic story of the life of Luis Zamperini some of you watched that movie and let me tell you that movie is very disturbing to watch I recently read the book and the book is even more disturbing to read and this this the story of Luis Zamperini is this. He's the son of Italian immigrants. He was born in New York, but he would be raised in Torrance, California. He was a very troubled and mischievous child. He began smoking at the age of five. He would frequently get into fights, and he was a thief. He was even known to steal beer from bootleggers. He was constantly in trouble with the law. And, and his brother didn't know how to contain him. His parents didn't know how to contain him. The police didn't know how to contain him. And so one day, the chief of police and his brother decided to convince him to take up running. And running, he did. He was known as the Torrance Tornado. He was so fast that he qualified for the Olympics at the age of 19. At the age of 19, he would go to Berlin, Germany, and he would compete in those Olympic Games. He, he, he ran um, such an impressive race that Adolf Hitler, Hitler took notice of him. And he wanted to shake the hand of Luis Zamperini. And so Louis Samarini shook the hand of Adolf Hitler, and he had no idea that he was staring in to the face of the devil. In 1941, Louis joined the United States Air Force. He was assigned to a B-24 and would be a bombardier on that plane. Following a tragic dogfight that saw many of his crew members fatally wounded or injured, his plane was destroyed, and his crew would be transferred to Hawaii where they would await future instructions on future missions. While there, they would be called out on a rescue mission. As would happen way too often in World War II, a plane had gone missing somewhere over the Pacific Ocean, and, and Luis's crew would go out over the Pacific Ocean trying to find that downed wreckage. And while they were flying, their plane um, broke down. And they ended up crashing into the Pacific Ocean. Everyone on board of that plane, with the exception of three men, were killed. Phil, the pilot. Mac, another gentleman, one of the gunners. And then Louise were the only ones to survive that wreck. Phil and Louise would spend 47 days drifting out in the Pacific Ocean. On day 33, Mac would perish out at sea. 
But on day 47, they were captured yards from land by the Japanese. And they would spend two years living in Japanese concentration camp after Josh concentration camp. The physical torment that they experience is beyond imagination. It, it, we can't even stomach the amount of, of torture that these men went through, especially Luis. He would remain a prisoner until the end of World War II. And as so many of our POWs um, experienced, he would not return home the same man that he left. And whenever he returned home, he became a severe alcoholic. It was pure hatred that raged within him. Hatred for those Japanese guards that inflicted so much pain upon him. He could not sleep at night. He was just constantly experiencing nightmares. And the only thing that could get rid of those nightmares was alcohol. And so he became a severe alcoholic. Not long after he returned to the States, he would meet the love of his life, a lady by the name of Cynthia. They would marry soon after. Three years into their marriage, Cynthia could, could stand no more of, of Luis's reckless lifestyle. And so she headed back east to live with her parents. And she intended to return only one more time to see Luis, and that was to finalize the divorce. But whenever she returned, there was a young Billy Graham that was preaching a revival service in L.A., And she went to one of those revival services and she gave her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she went home and she told Luis, I'm not going to divorce you. She was in it for the long haul. And so somehow she was able to convince Luis to go to one of these revival services. And Luis went. He sat through that service, very restless. And at the end of that service, he got up and he left. And he was more angry after he left than before he went. And he told Cynthia, I will never go back to hear that man preach again. And you can't convince me. But, well, somehow she convinced him to return one more night to that revival service. And so they went back to that revival service, and he had one condition. When the invitation is offered, I am going to leave. We're going to get up, and we're walking out of that place. I'm not going to sit through that again. Well, the gospel was preached. And the invitation was given. And Luis got up and he headed toward the end of that aisle as fast as he could. And as he was getting to the end of that aisle, Billy Graham said, At this time, no one leave. We're at the most important part of our service. Please do not leave. And Luis heeded those words. And instead of heading toward the exit, he ended up heading down the aisle. And he gave his life to the Lord, Jesus Christ, that evening. That evening, he went home. And the first thing he did was he gathered up all the whiskey bottles that were around his house. And he poured all of those down the drain. That God was no longer going to rule his life. He responded to the gospel and no longer was hatred and anger in the demons from his past going to reign over his life. The gospel had transformed his life. And I want you to know this morning that the gospel can transform your life as well. Luis would go on and become an evangelist and he would return to Japan several times. And while there, he had the opportunity to to share the good news of salvation with many of those prison guards that were responsible for inflicting so much pain upon his body. You know what the gospel does? 
The gospel also reveals the depth of God's love. The gospel is the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no greater news received by man than that of the gospel. In John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Gospel is the perfect picture of God's love for each and every one of us in this room and each and every person outside of the doors of this church this morning. It is a perfect picture of His love. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He would become a perfect sacrifice. And God was pleased with the sacrifice of His Son. So three days after He was placed in that tomb, He rose victoriously over death. And because of the work of Jesus on the cross, all of us in this room, if we would respond to Jesus in faith, we will be forgiven of our sins. You and I know this. If you are a believer in this room this morning, you know this. You know the story. You know the story of the gospel. You know that it is good news. But there are others in this room. You may not be a believer this morning. And I want you to know that there is no greater news this morning for you to hear than the news of the gospel, that Jesus died for you, that he, that he shed his blood for you. And he was victorious over death so that you can experience life this morning. The disciples, in our focal passage this morning, we have already mentioned this, but they were greatly distressed at what Jesus had told them. Why were they in distress? Because they were living in denial. They still expected Jesus, once he arrived in Jerusalem, to assume a physical throne and to become the king of the Jews. They expected him once and for all to kick the oppressive Roman government out of their midst. That's who they expected Jesus to be and what they expected him to do. So they did not want to hear of his impending death. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. And not only that, but they also, you got to keep in mind, they've spent the past three years of their lives with Jesus. Jesus was their master. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. And He was their friend. They did not want to hear of Him speaking of His death. You remember a couple weeks ago, Peter, upon hearing Jesus speak of His death, what did he do? He tried to rebuke Jesus, didn't he? He tried to put Jesus in his place. But what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Why did he say that? Because anyone that tries to get in the way of the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ were acting like the devil. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. The disciples were distressed. And it would not be until after Jesus' death and resurrection that they would fully understand everything that Jesus spoke of. Folks, the gospel is good news. The gospel transforms lives. It transformed the life of the disciples. And if you're a believer in this room this morning, you know that it has also transformed your life. And if you are not a believer this morning, let me encourage you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make before you leave this place. Notice also, the gospel is worth repeating. The gospel is worth repeating. 
You and I entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at the moment of our salvation. It is personal. There is nothing more personal in a person's life than their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is personal, but understand this. It is not intended to be private. Jesus, over and over and over, in all of God's Word, we read how we are to go, how we are to preach, how we are to make disciples, how we are to equip other people. We are to build other people up. We are to, 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 to instill within them the truth of God's Word. In Romans 10, 13-15, we read these words. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The gospel is good news. And the gospel will transform your life. But before transformation can occur, the gospel must be preached and the gospel must be received. So, folks, the gospel is worth repeating, isn't it? Notice our second point this morning. It is this. The gospel and our responsibility. This time of year, is there a more dreaded word than taxes? You know, I've already had my taxes done, and, and, and I know that many of you are in the process of having those done as well. It's nothing fun about getting everything together to get your taxes done. You know, as a family was vacationing at the beach, their toddler was playing in the sand. And as any toddler would do, when they, whenever they find something, they're going to put it in their mouth. Well, this boy was playing in the sand. And he noticed this shiny quarter. And the boy picked up that quarter and he placed it into his mouth. And as he's putting that quarter in his mouth, his mom yells out and says, Stop! Don't put that in your mouth! But what does the boy do? He swallowed it. He panicked and he swallowed that coin. And at that time, he began to choke. And the mom began to panic. And so she began to scream out, Help, help, my boy is choking. Help, help. And about that time, a man rushed over and picked up this boy. And he he wrapped his arms around the boy. And he gave a firm um, press to his chest. And at that point, that coin came out of that boy's mouth. And that mother began to celebrate. And she said, thank you, thank you, thank you, doctor. It's a miracle. Thank you for saving the life of my boy. And this man said, oh, I'm not a doctor, ma'am. I'm an IRS agent. So I'm an expert at getting people to cough up money. (laughs) Notice this. Notice our civic obligations. You know, we see a number of times the obligation to pay taxes in the gospel. Matthew was a tax collector himself. And so this is the only um, gospel account of this particular story this morning. But most of the taxes collected went straight to Rome, and they were a great burden upon the Jewish people. This morning we read of the temple tax, and unlike the Roman taxes that went straight to Rome, this temple tax was to stay in Israel. It was to be used for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, I know that Scripture speaks of this as a tax, but it was more like an offering than it was a tax. In fact, 
in Exodus 30 where this um, temple offering is first suggested by God the Father. Um, it is spoken of as an offering there. But, but we see in our passage this morning that it is called a tax. So it is an offering and it's a tax, however you want to interpret it this morning. But this offering would help with the yearly operation of the temple in Jerusalem. The tax collectors would begin collecting this tax about 30 days before the Passover. And so at this point in our, in our Matthew study, we finished about 18, the first 17 chapters of Matthew. And over the past um, many months that we've been studying this, we've covered almost three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. 30 days from now is the Passover. So just over 30 days from this particular story, the Lord Jesus Christ would be, will, will hang on a wooden tree and He will die for the sins of all of us in this room. So we're about 30 days from Jesus' death here. So the first 17 chapters of Matthew have covered Jesus' birth in, in almost three years of public ministry. Now the last 10 chapters that we're going to look at in the coming weeks are going to cover about 30 days of Jesus' final days here on earth. Read with me again in verses 24 and 25. We read, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. First thing we need to see, and we will look at this more in a few moments, but Jesus was under absolutely no obligation to pay this tax. He was a rabbi which would have exempted him from paying this tax. However, he would still pay it, as would Peter. Peter, because he had a civic duty to pay it, and, and Jesus, because he did not want to draw any unnecessary attention to himself. You and, us, you and I also have a civic duty to pay our taxes, don't we? It is a responsibility we have as citizens of this great country to pay our taxes. In fact, Scripture does not allow us not to pay our taxes. In Romans thirteen seven, we read these words, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. We have a civic responsibility to pay our taxes. Notice also here that Jesus was spiritually free from paying these taxes. He said, in verses 25 through 26 we read, he said, yes, this is Peter speaking. And then when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, What do you think, Simon? For whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. You know, Jesus was under no obligation to pay this tax as noted a moment ago. He was not obligated because he was the, a rabbi. That is why he was exempt, first of all. But there is a much, much bigger spiritual application for us here. God the Father is the king of the universe, right? We know that. And Jesus is the son of God. And we read in this passage of Scripture that a son is under no obligation to pay a tax if he is the son of a king. 
And so Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of the King. And so he's not obligated to pay this tax. Okay, but also know that it's this. Even bigger than his exemption as the Son of God is his exemption because the temple in Jerusalem is no longer God's dwelling place. If you recall, it was within the Holy of Holies that the presence of the Lord dwelt. But when Jesus arrived... He became the literal dwelling place of the Lord. And we saw His glory on full display a couple of weeks ago when we saw Jesus pull back His humanity and His glory was shown for Peter, James, and John to see. And so we know that Jesus is the literal dwelling place of God the Father. He is the literal temple. In Matthew 12, 6, Jesus himself said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And Jesus is speaking of himself right here as the temple. We also read in John 2, 18 and 19. Jesus said, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus became the literal dwelling place of God. And he came to usher in a new and glorious way in which you and I are able to access God the Father. No longer would a priest have to access God on behalf of the people. Jesus came and as a result of his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus became the source, the door, the access point for you and I to access God the Father. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. The days of a literal, physical temple were coming to an end because Jesus was the literal, physical temple dwelling on earth at this time. And we will also see there will be two major points of destruction that would be coming to the literal temple in Jerusalem. The first being in Matthew 27, 51, we read these words, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The curtain which separated the high priest from, from God the Father was torn by God, making it clear to us that no longer was man separated from God. No longer did a priest have to access, um, be the access point for man to God. When that temple was ripped, all of us were given access to God the Father when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He provided direct access to himself because of the redemptive work of Jesus. So that's the first kind of first major destructive point to the temple. But there would be a greater point of destruction that would come to the literal temple in A.D. 70. In 70 A.D., under the orders from the Roman emperor Nero, the physical temple was completely destroyed. And so what we see within this passage of Scripture this morning is that Jesus himself is the literal temple. Jesus was exempt for paying this tax for the temple, but yet what did Jesus do? He still paid it. 
Regardless of his exemption, Jesus still paid the tax. Not only did he cover his own portion of the tax, but he would make provisions for Peter's portion of the tax as well. Notice the miraculous provision this morning. In verse 27 we read, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. You know, I love this picture. I love this story. It kind of makes me laugh whenever I read it. Can you imagine Peter's reaction whenever Jesus told him, I want you to go and cast a hook into the Sea of Galilee. And I want you to catch a fish. And in the mouth of that fish is going to be a shekel. Now keep in mind, Peter was a professional fisherman. I doubt that he would go out very often and fish with a hook and a string. I imagine that when Peter fished, he didn't fish for one fish at a time. He fished for dozens, if not hundreds of fish because he would use a net and he would cast it into the Sea of Galilee with the other fishermen. Then they would bring in loads of fish, not just one fish. And so we see within our story this morning, this this picture. First of all, most likely Peter had never before caught a fish with a coin in its mouth. Okay? If he had, we would have heard of this fish story long before probably this point in Scripture. But what does Peter do? Does Peter question Jesus? Does he turn and say, Jesus, um, I've been fishing a long time and I've never caught a fish with a coin in his mouth. No, Peter had learned not to question Jesus. Because every time he seemed to question Jesus, what would end up happening? He'd put his foot in his mouth, wouldn't he? So Peter goes out. And he casts that hook, and he catches that fish, and in the mouth of that fish is a coin. And notice this, that coin was a shekel. The requirement for the tax was a two drachma tax, which would have been half a shekel. All that Jesus was required to pay on that day was half a shekel. But what did Jesus do? Jesus made provisions not only for his portion of the tax to be paid, but also for Peter's portion of that tax to be paid as well. Uh, Half drachma would be about two days wage. And so that would have been an enormous amount of money for Peter and for Jesus for that matter. But right here we see that Jesus made provisions for both himself and Peter that day. God is good, isn't he? He has made provisions for all of us in this room this morning. He has made financial provisions for us. But so much more important than the financial provisions that He has made for us is He has made provisions for our eternity. Have you responded this morning to the gospel? Have you responded this morning to the good news of Jesus Christ? Have you responded to the life and to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has made provisions for your eternity. If you would believe in Him and repent of your sins, Scripture is clear that you will experience eternal life. You may be thinking this morning that, man, I've messed up way too much to be forgiven for my sins. Man, I have messed up way, way too much. I could never be forgiven. 
I want you to know that God's Word is full of stories about unqualified men and women that have found faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Word is full of murderers, of prostitutes, of idol worshipers, and God-haters that came to faith in God the Father. And if God made provisions for their eternity and recorded their stories within His holy Word for our benefit, then guess what? He can make provisions for your sin as well, for your story. He can forgive you no matter how big, no matter how hairy that sin might be this morning. God can forgive you of that this morning if you will respond to Him in faith. Once again, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. There is one way to access God the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, let me encourage you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. The gospel is good news. The gospel is worth repeating. And guess what else? The gospel deserves a response. Because of what Jesus Christ did for each and every one of us in this room, He deserves a response from us. And that response is either, yes, I'm going to believe in you, or no, I'm not going to believe in you. Regardless, a response will be given by every single person on the face of this earth to either believe in Jesus or to reject Jesus. For those that believe in Jesus, eternal life awaits. For those that reject Jesus, then eternal death and separation awaits in a literal place called hell. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, and, and you don't know where you would spend eternity if you were to die today, I want to invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. And that is to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And if you do that, Scripture says that you will be saved. By making Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life this morning, you will be saved. Some, man, 50, 60 years ago or, or so, Luis Zamperini walked an aisle and he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ and he was never the same again. The same can happen to you this morning. If you give your life over to Jesus Christ, you will never be the same again. So if you don't know Jesus, you come this morning. Let's stand together. And if there's a decision you need to make, I want to invite you this morning to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning. Lord Jesus, just thanking you for the privilege of being in your house again. Thanking you for the privilege to read from your word this morning. Thanking you for the good news. Thanking you for the gospel. Thanking you for the story of your life, of your death, and of your resurrection. Thank you for, for making provisions for every one of us in this room to enter into an eternal, lasting relationship with you through faith. Father, your word says that if we will repent of our sins, 
and cry out to you to be the Lord and Savior of our lives, that we will be saved. And I pray this morning, if there is someone in this place this morning that does not have a relationship with you, that this morning they will enter into an eternal relationship with you. And Father, I know this morning in this room, I know so 99% of the people in this room. And Father, most of us in this room are already believers. We have already given our lives over to you. But Father, we live in a world And we do life with people every single day that have not entered into a relationship with you. And so, Father, as one of our sub-points this morning instructed us, the gospel is worth repeating. Father, the good news is worth repeating. So, Father, give us a hunger for the good news of salvation. Father, give us a hunger and a passion to see lives transformed. Father, give us an urgency to go and to share the good news with those that do not have a relationship with you. Father, just move, Father, within our lives and our hearts this morning. If there's a decision in which someone needs to come this morning and give their life over to you, Father, then, Father, we look forward to rejoicing with all of the angels in heaven over this lost sheep that has come home. Father, if, if, if your time of invitation needs to be us doing business with you, realizing that we need to share the good news with those that we come in contact with. Father, give us conviction this morning. Reveal to us names of those that we need to share with. Father, there may be some here this morning that you are leading to become members of Friendship Baptist Church. And if that is the case, Lord, we welcome them to be a part of this faith family, to be a part of this community of believers. Lord, we love you. And we thank you and we ask that you move now during this time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If there's a decision you need to make this morning, you come now. If you need to come and surrender your life to Jesus, you come. If the Lord's leading you to make friendship your church home, you come. You may need to just, where you're at, just bow your head and close your eyes and pray. And pray and ask the Father to reveal to you names of those that you need to share the good news with. And I know that there are people that I need to share the good news with as well. With every head bowed and every eye closed, instruments are just going to play for a moment. If there's a decision you need to make, you come. You come now. You come.